Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, 1 Samuel, chapters 16 and 17. Last week in uh, 1 Samuel 16, we saw young David, son of Yeshai, Jesse, anointed by Samuel. But the narrator is careful not to say that David was anointed king over Israel. Now it's probably not entirely clear to David's family and whoever else was in attendance just what that anointing ceremony was intended to accomplish. There is no hint that anyone but Samuel and Jehovah who sent him knew what an enormous event had just transpired. Now it's interesting that while one name is often used by many Bible characters, we don't ever see the name David duplicated. In Hebrew, it is Dawid. But because it's an unusual name, the sages don't entirely agree on its meaning. And I'm not going to go into all the many suggestions, that the, that, uh, but, but the one that's been most generally agreed upon is that it means beloved. Now what's important for us to grasp in our time is that much has been made that no ancient artifact bearing the name David had ever been found in Israel. But somewhat recently, there have been a couple of finds that refers to him. Probably the most important one is known as the uh, Victory Stella that was uncovered of all places at Tel Dan, the far north of Israel, that speaks plainly of the house of Dawid. Now some have tried to claim that this might be referring to another and different house of Dawid. All right, not the David of the Bible or better David's dynasty. But but that's pretty implausible. Because Dawid was such a rare name in Israel. And the Stella specifically refers to Israel, Judah. It speaks of the house of David as being the royal house. It can be no other than the biblical King David. Now we find that the Bible actually speaks of three separate occasions when David was anointed. The first time was here when Samuel anointed him as Nagid, king-in-waiting. Okay. Although the passage where that happens, uh, chapter 16, verse 13, uh, where this anointing happens, it doesn't specifically say king-in-waiting. That's made evident earlier in verse 1 when Samuel was sent to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem to do just that. Now the second anointing of David would be performed by the leaders of Judah for David to be a king over the house of Judah. That's recorded in 2 Samuel 2.4. The third time he would be anointed 
by the elders of Israel to be a king over Israel, and that's recorded in 2 Samuel 5.3. A king over Judah and a king over Israel are by no means the same thing. Now I make this point at this time because while the Bible does contain many mysteries, the reasons that some things happened as they did are quite apparent and we don't have to wonder about them. We've learned enough of the history and the regional politics of that era to see that now was not the moment for Samuel to announce David as the new king because Saul was still firmly entrenched on that throne and he had the full backing of the northern tribes. And further, since the Israelites' loyalties were divided between the northern tribes led by Ephraim and their king was Saul, and the southern tribes led by Judah, who only tacitly acknowledged Saul, it was completely logical that David's own tribe, Judah, would be the first to wholeheartedly accept him as their king. Only after David was king of the south, king over Judah, was he finally in any position to consolidate his power. But first, King Saul had to die so that the throne became vacant. And then a power struggle over the leadership of the northern tribes would ensue. It was under this scenario, it was this way then, that David would bring the north and the south together as one united sovereign nation called Israel. Thus, when in 2 Samuel 5.3 we read that David was anointed by the elders of Israel to be king over Israel, what that really meant was that David was accepted by the leaders of the northern tribes who had formerly given their loyalty to Saul. David had already been anointed sometime earlier by the southern tribes. This is why we'll find that David knew immediately he had to go and search out a neutral site for a capital city, which turned out to be Jerusalem. Otherwise, he'd be seen as favoring one tribal coalition over the other, and he wouldn't be viewed as the legitimate and the even-handed king over all 12 tribes. There's reasons for these things. Now we also need to go forward in the all-important context that the spirit of Jehovah had departed from Saul. And this Holy Spirit was not only the source of power and enlightenment for God's earthly governor, it was also the spirit of a sound mind. Thus we read that since God's spirit had left Saul, it was instantly replaced with another kind of spirit that caused evil to befall the king. And the principle that we see so clearly on display here is that there is no such thing as a human soul that is not occupied with a supernatural spiritual influence. This supernatural influence is either going to be for good or for evil. 
this influence will either cause good to flow or evil to run, run amok. There is no middle ground. There is no such thing as a spiritual equivalent of Switzerland. In turn, we're informed that this Holy Spirit of good that was taken from Shaul now fell upon David. So let's pick up our story at verse 16. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 13 rather. Verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. And we're going to read that to the end. Page 315 in your complete Jewish Bible. Shmuel took the horn of oil and anointed him there in his brother's presence. And from that day on, the spirit of Adonai would fall upon David with power. So Samuel set out out and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of Adonai had left Saul, and instead an evil spirit from Adonai would suddenly come over him. And Saul's servant said to him, Do you notice that there's an evil spirit from Adonai that suddenly comes over you? Let our Lord now command your servants who are here with you to go and look for a man who knows how to play the lyre. Then if the evil spirit from Adonai comes over you, he will play. It will do you good. And Shoal said to his servants, Find me a man who can play well. Bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Here, I've seen one of the sons of Yeshai the Beit Lachmi, Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play. He's a brave soldier. He can fight. He chooses his words carefully. He's pleasant looking. Besides, Adonai is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse saying, Send me David your son who was out with the sheep. Yeshai took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them with David to his son to Saul. David came to Saul and presented himself to him, and Saul took a great liking to him and made him his armor bearer. Saul sent a message to Yeshai. Please let David stay in my service because I'm pleased with him. So it was that whenever the evil spirit from God came over Shaul, David would take the lyre and play it with the result that Saul would find relief and feel better as the evil spirit left him. The effects of the Lord departing from Saul and of the spiritual influence that caused evil replacing it were physically evident. It was clearly observable. And those who were closest to him couldn't help but notice it. You know, it's interesting that the one who seemed to be oblivious to the effects of it all was Saul himself. Oh, he no doubt recognized when he was feeling especially agitated or melancholy or depressed, irrationally angry, but he didn't seem to recognize why. Just as he could never seem to, to make that leap of faith by connecting the presence of Yehovah with his own personal behavior and decisions and thus creating a personal relationship with the Lord now he couldn't seem to make the connection 
between his emotional and intellectual deterioration and the absence of Yehovah. But terrifying as it is for us to contemplate, in some ways, whether he realized it or not, or finally made that connection or not, it no longer mattered. His earthly and internal future had already been set in stone. His name had been removed from the book of life. God judged him with the result that Saul would remain forever cut off from God. Now all that was left then was for some kind of earthly salve to be applied to Saul's tormented mind to give him some relief. And his closest advisors suggested that music might be a good medicine. Most Bibles, such as our complete Jewish Bible, will translate the Hebrew word eved as servants. But in this context, it's not referring to menial laborers who suggested the prescription of music, but rather to his royal court. Why music? It was a combination of a superstition and an observed reality that indeed music does have an inherent quality that can soothe the savage breast. All ancient societies used music to fight demons. Think about the Pied Piper. Okay? And Saul's advisors were fully aware, as the passage makes note, that there is this connection between music and spirits, especially evil spirits. And that the underlying cause of the king's depression and fits of rage was a spirit that seemed to come and go. And this spirit caused evil. So they recommended finding a suitable musician who could magically exercise whatever demon or spirit that brought forth evil that was hounding him and thus provide some relief for the king. In fact, when we look closer at the Hebrew of verse 15, we find that it is said that this spirit from Yehovah is Ba'at Sha'ul. Ba'at Sha'ul. The spirit is terrorizing Saul. Terrorizing. Some Bibles correctly translate it this way. The king agrees to allow his court to find such a musician. And one fellow says he knows just the man for the job. One of the sons of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He describes this musician as a brave soldier who chooses his words carefully and he's pleasant looking. All of this information is important both for King Saul and for us, the future readers of this story. First it is that David will by definition have such intimate proximity to the king and necessarily be aware of his mental and emotional state, especially when it's at its worst, then he's going to have to be of an appropriately refined and trustworthy type. The family of Yishai, you see, was part of the ruling class of Judah. So David fits that bill. 
But David is also a superb player of the lyre. He has the right kind of pleasant parents and is properly educated so he can speak well. Now, although this doesn't occur to Saul, these are also the same kinds of attributes that are expected of a king. So King Saul sends a messenger to Yeshai, summoning David. Jesse, being wise in the ways of power and protocol, of course complies, and along with David he sends a donkey laden with bread, wine, and a young goat as a gift. Jesse fully understands the tremendous opportunity of having his son having the king's ear. David immediately ingratiated himself to King Saul and then the king took a liking to him. In fact, King Saul declared David to be his armor bearer. Now, an armor bearer is not exactly how it might seem to us. We picture an armor bearer as a soldier who carries his boss's armor or weapons in in servant fashion. An armor bearer, though, was actually more of a title given for a certain official office than it was the description of a task. By no means does the title indicate that an armor bearer was one who carried the king's military gear, although some probably did. See, the effect of such a privileged title gave David a position of prestige and no small amount of authority. It was usual for kings and potentates to have numerous armor bearers. And in fact, in 2 Samuel 18, 15, we will learn that Joab had ten men holding that title. And no doubt they each served a separate governmental function for him in his administration. So David was an armor bearer whose function was as the court musician, all right, who played away the king's foul moods. Now before we move to chapter 17, I want to clear up something that modern liberal scholars at times completely pervert for reasons of an obvious politically correct agenda. In verse 21, we find it says that Shaul loved David. Now, our complete Jewish Bible says greatly liked, but that's not accurate. In fact, the original Hebrew Bible says that Saul, Ahab, David, Ahab is love. It's Hebrew for love. The liberal innuendo, therefore, is that there was a homosexual relationship going on here. And later on also, between Jonathan and David. Well, that's just utter nonsense. It it doesn't take a very in-depth historic and linguistic study of the Bible and the biblical era to learn that Ahab is not about an erotic affection between two people. In the sense used here, it means to greatly accept. It means to bring near as a trusted person. We find that love was commonly used to describe a king-vassal relationship. So the term love, ahab, was, was a common part 
of Middle Eastern political language to describe a person close to the throne or somebody who had royal favor and it had no sexual overtones to it at all. Well, let's open our Bibles and read chapter 17, which contains one of the most well-known and often told stories enjoyed by children and adults. This is a very long chapter, but we're going to read it from beginning to end because I don't want to lose any context. Now, depending on which Bible translation you're using, you may find that this chapter does not contain several of the verses that I'm going to be reading to you. And a result, as a result of this, the verse numbers might be different and fewer. Now, I'll explain why that is right after we read the chapter. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 17. 316 in your complete Jewish Bible. The Philistines rallied their troops for war, assembling at Soho in uh, Yehuda and setting up a camp between Soho and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. Saul and the men of Israel assembled, set up camp in the Elah Valley and drew up their battle line opposite the Philistines. The Philistines occupied a position on one hill, Israel a position on another hill with a valley in between them. There came out a champion from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, who was nine feet nine inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore bronze armor plate weighing 120 pounds. He had bronze armor protecting his legs, a bronze javelin between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was as big as a weaver's beam. The iron spearhead weighed 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. He stood and yelled at the armies of Israel, Why come out and draw up a battle line? I'm a Philistine, and you are servants of Saul. So choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he can fight me and kill me, will be your slaves. But if I beat him, kill him, you will become slaves and serve us. The Philistine added, I challenge Israel's armies today. Give me a man. We'll fight it out. And when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were shaken and terrified. Now David was the son of that Ephrathi from Bethlehem in Judah named Yeshai. He had eight sons, and in the time of Saul he was old. The years had taken their toll. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadav, and the third Shammah. Now David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to pasture his father's sheep at Beit Lechem. Meanwhile, the Philistines approached with his challenge. The Philistine approached with his challenge every morning and evening for forty days. Jesse said to David, his son, "Please take your brothers five bushels of this roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and hurry. Carry them to your brothers at the camp. Also, these ten cheeses to their field officer. Find out if your brothers are well. Bring back some token from them." 
Saul and your brothers with all the army of Israel are in the Elah Valley fighting the Philistines. Well, David got up early in the morning. He left the sheep with a helper. He took his load and set out as Jesse had ordered him. And he arrived at the barricade of the camp just as the troops were going out to their battle. Uh, out to their battle stations and, and shouting out the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines had set up their battle lines facing each other. David left his equipment in charge of the equipment guard. He ran to the troops, went to his brothers and asked if they were well. And as they were talking, as he was talking with him, there came the champion, the Philistine from Gat named Goliath, from the ranks of the Philistines, saying the same words as before. And David heard them. And when the soldiers of Israel saw the man, they ran away from him, terrified. The soldiers from Israel said to each other, You saw that man who just came up. He has come to challenge Israel. To whoever kills him, the king will give him a rich reward. He'll also give him his daughter, exempt his father's family from all service and taxes in Israel. And David said to the men standing with him, What reward will be given to this man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway that he challenges the armies of the living God? The people answered with what they had been saying, adding, that's what will be done for the man who kills him. Well, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard what David spoke to the men and it made Eliab angry at him. And he asked, why do you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are. How wicked your heart is. You just came down here to watch the fighting. And David said, What have I done now? I only asked a question. He turned away from him to someone else and asked the same question, and the people gave him the same answer. David's words were overheard and told to Saul, who summoned him. And David said to Saul, No one should lose heart because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a boy. And he's been a warrior from his youth. And David answered Saul, Well, your servant used to guard his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear would come and grab a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it and hit it and snatch the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned on me, I'd catch it by its jaw and smack it and kill it. Your servant has defeated lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he's challenged the armies of the living God. And then David said, Adonai who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the paw of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, may Adonai be with you. So Saul dressed David in his own armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and he gave him armor plate to wear and David buckled his sword on his armor and he tried to walk. He wasn't used to this equipment. David said to Saul, I can't move wearing these things because I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Then he took his stick in his hand and picked five smooth stones from the riverbed, putting them in his shepherd's bag in his pouch. And then with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine, with the shield-bearer ahead of him, came near and near to David. The Philistine looked David up and down. He had nothing but scorn for what he saw. A boy with ruddy cheeks, red hair, good looks. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Is this why you're coming at me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Then the Philistine said to David, 
Come here to me, so I can give your flesh to the birds and the air and the wild animals. And David answered the Philistine, You're coming at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I'm coming at you in the name of Adonai Tzavot, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've challenged. Today Adonai will hand you over to me. I will attack you, lock your head off, and give the carcass of the, ar- uh, of the army of the Philistines to the birds in the air and the animals in the land. Then all the land will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that Adonai does not save by sword or by spear. For this is Adonai's battle. He will hand you over to us. And when the Philistine got up and approached and came close to meet David, David hurried and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag. He took out a stone and he hurled it with his sling. It struck the Philistine in his forehead, buried itself in his forehead, so that he fell face down on the ground. Thus David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking the Philistine and killing him. But David had no sword in his hand. Then David ran and took o- stood over the Philistine. He took out a sword. He drew it out of its sheath. He finished killing him, cutting his head off with it. When Philistines saw when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah got up, shouting. They pursued the Philistine all the way to Gat into the gates of Ekron. The wounded Philistines fell down all along the road from Sha'araim to Gat and Ekron. And after chasing the Philistines, the army of Israel returned and plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put the armor of the Philistine in his tent. When Saul saw David go out to fight the Philistine, he said to Abner, the army's commander, Abner, whose son is this boy? On your life, King Abner replied, I don't know. And the king said, Fight out whose son this boy is. And as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul asked him, Young man, whose son are you? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Quite a story. Well, this chapter is actually somewhat controversial. And the nature of the controversy is best demonstrated when we notice that the Greek Septuagint version of this chapter lacks nearly half of the verses that are found in the Masoretic text version, which is what I just read to you from. Specifically, the Greek Septuagint does not have verses 12 through 31, nor 41, nor 48, nor 55 through 58. Now, there are a lot of academic speculations on this conundrum. One is that the Septuagint is correct, and someone later added verses to the Masoretic text. Another is that the Masoretic text is correct and several verses were omitted for some unknown reason from the Septuagint. Now, whichever is factual, the reason for such a discrepancy is also disputed. Some say that this story of David and Goliath is kind of a sloppy blending of two separate traditions um, about this incident, blending them into one. 
Others say it's not a blending of two traditions, but rather it is that the Septuagint, which is actually the oldest extant version of the Holy Scriptures in existence, even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the older and represents one tradition, and the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible from around the 9th or 10th century AD, is a newer and entirely different tradition of the story. Now, I have no reasonable means of arguing this one way or another. What I will say is that from a theological standpoint, there is no disagreement that the lack of or the addition of any of these particular verses causes. Mostly, they're just about some extended details surrounding the confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines and who was there. When present, these verses add to the color of the story. When absent, no context or valuable information is really lost. That said, at the end of the story, the presence of verses 55 through 58 are troublesome. And they seem to be inconsistent with earlier parts of the story. It may be merely a storytelling technique that confuses. Or it is that some later editor added these verses for some unknown reason. We'll deal specifically with those ending verses when we get to them. Anyway, the first few verses of chapter 17 set the scene for the battle between David and Goliath. And it seems that the ever-present Philistines had gathered their strength again, probably emboldened by the knowledge that King Saul was a king in decline and susceptible to the irrational behavior uh, that he was exhibiting. And and, And so they moved on into Israelite territory. Now, since their territory was generally contiguous to the southern and central tribal areas of Canaan, it's no surprise we find them setting up battle lines in the southern region, Judah. Well, the place the Philistines chose was strategically important. The Valley of Elah, Elah means oak or or terebinth, was a natural highway that passed... um, into the hill country of Judah, it proceeded through the coastal plains of Canaan, the Sheflah, from the Philistine homeland. Now, if the Philistines could control this valley, all right, they could move large amounts of troops and supplies rather easily, something that Israel couldn't allow them to do. Well, the two cities or villages of Soko and Azekah were listed actually in the book of Joshua as being in the lowlands of Judah. So the modern-day village of Kerbet Shueche is almost certainly the right location. It's a very popular tourist destination for pilgrims to Israel, and having been there a few times, I can tell you that it's a good place to read this story and make it come alive. And those of you going on this tour, that's exactly one of the, one of the things we're going to do. The valley there is large and, and, and flat, uh, almost like a plain between two mountain ranges. Right? And, and there's a riverbed that, that, uh, that snakes through it. All right? And, and the, the, the valley plain separated the two armies, the Philistines occupying one side of the hills and the, 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 the uh, uh, Saul's army of militia on the other. 
Each side was out there every day sizing up the other one. Neither was too sure. But what the outcome of all this might be if a battle broke out, a battle that was going to be inevitable. Well, something needed to happen to break the paralysis of this situation. So suddenly, a giant of a man emerges from the Philistine camp and he begins shouting challenges at these trembling Israelite soldiers. The giant's name was Goliath, Goliath, who hailed from Goth, one of the famous five Philistine stronghold cities that together became known in scholarly circles as the Pentapolis. Now this man was enormously tall. The Hebrew text says he was six cubits plus a span. A cubit is about 18 inches. A span about 9 inches, which approximates the distance from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the little finger of a spread hand. A span. Thus, if the calculation is correct, Goliath stood about 9 feet 9 inches tall. This height was just too extreme for some early Hebrew scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, to accept. So they arbitrarily lowered the number to four cubits plus a span, which then makes Goliath a more believable, at least to them, six feet, nine inches tall. Now, these were the scholars, by the way, who around 250 B.C. translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek and created, you guessed it, the Septuagint. So if your Bible has the measurement of four cubits, then your translation follows the English rendition of the Greek Septuagint. In an era when the average height of a man hovered around five feet, a man almost seven feet tall indeed was a giant. But there is no reason for us to accept that lower number. There are many reliable historical records of men who grew to Goliath's height and even more. Okay, Philo and Josephus both recorded the existence of men in their time that they personally knew of and were well over nine feet tall. We have records of a man named John Middleton who lived during the 1600s near Liverpool, England. He was reported to be about nine and one half feet tall. There's a German fellow who went by the nickname of the Uncle of Irene, who lived in the middle 1800s, who was reported to be slightly over 10 feet tall. <clears throat> the thing is, you see, the city of Gath, which is where he was from, one of the Philistine cities, was especially known as a place where remnants of that race of giants called the Anakim lived. Now, we're not talking about fee-fi-fo-fum giants, all right, just really tall men who were fierce warriors. Okay? And we find that reference in the book of Joshua. 11.22, it says, No Anakim were left in the land of the people of Israel. They were only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did some remain. And of course, Goliath was from Gath, one of those three cities. In other words, at this time, the only known remaining Anakim, these giants, were living amongst the Philistines. So, 
it would have come as no great surprise to the Israelites to run into one of those dudes right here at the Valley of Elah. However, just the sight of this enormous human being kept the Israelite soldiers hiding among the rocks and clinging them to for protection like geckos. In order to give us the visual impact that Goliath had on Saul's soldiers, we're told that he wore a bronze helmet on that huge noggin of his. He also wore a special kind of bronze armor that alone weighed over a hundred pounds. The armor is more precisely defined as scale armor. That is, it was created like, like shingles on a roof. Right, individual bronze plates overlap the one next to it, and that kept out arrows and blows of swords. This is as opposed to what later came to be called a suit of mail. Right, M-A-I-L, that kind of mail which were small bronze loops that were strung together that permitted body armor with more flexibility and considerably less weight. We actually have a pretty good idea of what Goliath's scale armor looked like because in reliefs created by the Assyrians, we see their charioteers wearing it. Well, his weapons weren't terribly advanced. They were just scary huge. I mean, the wooden shaft of his spear was said to be the size of a weaver's beam. In other words, a beam used to construct a loom. And the iron spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. I mean, who could carry such an implement of war, let alone throw it for any distance? He also wore protective anklets, carried a scimitar slung across his back. This is a scimitar. A scimitar is like is a curved sword, all right, with the sharpened edge along the outer the outer edge of it, and this in time became a very traditional weapon used in the Orient. Thus, we find that except for his face, Goliath's entire body was protected. The point is that from a purely physical, earthly standpoint, this man could not possibly be beaten by some puny five-foot-tall Israelite soldier. He had every advantage, size, strength, iron weapons, confidence. So Goliath came out into the valley plain and called up to the shivering Israelites. He asked them more or less rhetorically if they really wanted to come out and fight the Philistines. After all, while Goliath is a professional soldier in the professional and experienced Philistine army, he points out to them they're just slaves of King Saul. In other words, they're not trained warriors. They aren't being paid for their services. They were just Hebrew farmers and herdsmen and tradesmen and merchants for the most part. So Goliath gives them an alternative that was actually fairly usual generally since warfare itself was created. He says, why don't we make it a battle of one Philistine himself against one Israelite? A battle of surrogates. Their best man 
against the Hebrews' best man. The bargain was that only one soldier need lose his life and the army of the defeated soldier side would voluntarily submit to the winning champion. Obviously, Goliath was not only rather certain that no one would challenge him, but that if anyone was foolish enough to volunteer, the encounter would be rather short. As verse 11 explains, there were no takers. The mere thought of it frightened these Israelites all the more, which of course was his intent. Of course, even if Goliath weren't there, the Israelites knew they were at a disadvantage because the Philistines were an overwhelming military force with the most advanced iron iron weaponry and the largest contingent of chariots known in that era. I mean, from all human aspects, the defeat of Israel was certain. Here at verse 12 begins about 20 consecutive verses that are the bulk of the ones that are excluded from the Septuagint. And we immediately run into a term that we've confronted before. Ephrathi. We've seen it in a bunch of forms. Ephrath of Judah. Ephratah of Bethlehem. The term seems to indicate a class of people more than a family or a clan. And the class is of the well-to-do. Another way to say it is the fruitful. Apparently this kind of class identification fit Jesse's family, including David, Jesse's youngest. Here we see again the issue of how many sons Jesse had pop up because it says here that he had eight. Other passages say it was seven. Remember we covered that extensively last week. Jesse said to be an old man, which means that his eldest sons were probably in late middle age. Saying Jesse was old isn't just a throwaway statement. It's here to explain why he wasn't present for the battle. He had reached an age where he was exempt from military service. So here we find that David's brothers Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah were all present to face the Philistines as Jesse's kind of family contribution to the war effort. We don't know David's age at this time, but he was a man, he wasn't a child. Likely he was in his late teens at the youngest. David still seemed to be in charge of his father's sheep, and so he would tend the flocks for a time. Then he'd go to King Saul, probably when he summoned him, to perform duties as a court musician. And then verse 16 supplies the information that every day for 40 days, Goliath climbed down to the valley between those two forces, and he shouted his challenge to the non-responsive Israelite soldiers for 40 days. We need to pay attention to the number of days being 40. The number 40 holds particular significance in the Bible. It refers to a precise number, not just a long period of time. There are at least 10 instances in the Old Testament and New where the number 40 occurs. And it's always either in days or years, such as it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, the Israelites wandered for 40 years, Yeshua fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, was seen on earth for 40 days after his crucifixion. Okay. A 40-something time period 
whether that something is days, months, or years, is always in the Bible a period of testing, of trial, probation, even chastisement, not judgment. And it always ends with a period of restoration and revival and renewal. The number 40 represents a pattern in the Bible. It shows us that God is so consistent. So the meaning of a number in Genesis remains the same all the way through the book of Revelation. Sometimes the spiritual significance isn't directly revealed. Another case, but in the cases of number 40, and it's many examples throughout the Bible, we can be certain of its importance and significance. And of course, it's no different in the story of David and Goliath. We'll continue our story the next time we meet.